I'm Austin Meek with Waco Business News, and you're listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. My guest today is the filmmaker Chris Charles Scott. Welcome to Downtown Depot. Austin, you have a very lovely voice. It is an honor to get to have you here in the studio. I've seen so many of your films. Nice to know that there are some dulcet tones behind the camera as well. So you have had at least two documentaries that have centered on either Waco or on Baylor. But you live in Las Vegas and you did Baylor undergrad, but you've been a transplant now for a while. Tell me about Waco. What are your thoughts about Waco as a city and how have your thoughts of what Waco is evolved since you've gone into a more professional capacity of looking at Waco as a film scene, as a backdrop? In 2002, I was a sophomore at Baylor, maybe a junior. I ran for city council in District 2 against a guy named Carlos Pacina. I ran because... I'm not saying I'm a prophet here, but I ran because I saw the vision of what they're now doing to downtown, how they're now developing the Riverwalk and the Brazos. Um, I knew Waco was primed for that. Waco, when I moved here as a, uh, a student, looked exactly like Austin did like 25 years ago. And you saw this massive expansion, this massive modernization of Austin. And I thought, we're just right up the road. Waco could be awesome, too. But just time after time after time, you saw that there was just no, at this time, this is 2002, 2003, I felt that there was no vision of wanting to, like, bring down the barrier between Baylor and the downtown area. Um, There was not a concerted effort to me to bridge that gap between town and gowns. And I wanted to be on the council to bridge that gap because I knew that once Waco and Baylor got on the same page, this could be an uh, an incredible, incredible town. Now, when I was in, we, when I was here at Baylor, you actually had to go to the computer lab to get on the internet. Like no one had laptops and stuff. I remember Sports Illustrated did a, a, did an article um, on the best and worst college uh, towns. Carbondale, Illinois, was ranked last. Second to last was, guess what? No. Waco, Texas. Really? Waco, Texas. And I, I was so deflated reading that article. I was like, this is, a, this is a town I just picked to go to school in. And, and the article was like dead on. And, uh, and that's when like Baylor had this whole weird thing about like, do our students drink? They don't drink. We can't have bars around. No dancing. No dancing. Um, it was just it was it was just a weird vibe, and I knew that Waco could be better, and so we credit a lot of this modernization of Waco with Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? Incredible people that they 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 the trophy is theirs, right? On um, the people who who sparked this, but dare I say. I also think that the football team uh, starting to win sparked this whole, where's Waco? What is Waco? And that even made the people here in McLennan County start thinking, wow, we could be big timey here. And I just drove into town and the ongoing, the perennial construction of I-35 is this proof that this town is about to explode. 
So I look at Waco when I was a student. This is beautiful town with just this great potential, but just couldn't figure out how to get everybody in the same room to move the ball forward. But now you look at it as like, damn, I should have invested in property here 20 years ago. And so it's just so proud to see like Waco finally becoming that city that we thought it could be. It's easy to think that the time that we arrived is when it's now fully formed and it's it's its version of everything you had a vision for back in 2002. Probably 10 or 15 years from now, we will be laughing at how hilariously behind the 2022 version of Waco is compared to the 2032 or 2042. And that should be good. Something we should all be excited about. Imagine a Waco with a world-class, state-of-the-art, modern assembly hall, a pavilion, an arena that bridges the gap between downtown Waco and Baylor University. The Hurd Center, which is going on, uh, the construction is going on now, uh, right at the doorstep of our campus at University Parks in I-35. You see this coming into Waco, and you think that this is the most incredible, modern, uh, growing town. When you have students walking from campus to attend basketball games and then to maybe spill out into the bars afterwards or the restaurants before. Pre-gaming before uh, at McLean Stadium, we park in downtown, we'll hit up crickets, and then we'll walk over to the stadium. We could not have conceptualized that in 2002, 2003, 2004, but the elements were there. The dots were all there. We were just having problems connecting those dots. And now when you see the success of Baylor's athletic programs, the investment that Baylor is making within itself to improve its front door, to improve its facilities, and to really engage with the citizens of Waco, you go in to any barbershop. Um, I'm black, and I go to the black barbershop when I'm in town. My barber, who is still uh, in operation, was a barber I went to when I was at, at Baylor. And... Used to, you would go into these shops and just know Baylor. Now you go into his shop. Baylor bears this, basketball this, national championship this. The estrangement from Baylor and the normal good citizens of Waco, that relationship is improving to the point where this just all feels like one big happy place. And that's where we needed Waco to be. And so Baylor has done a great job of, of reeling in those local supporters and the local black businesses, like across the river um, on the Elm Street and on all of those neighborhoods and all of those businesses. It's no longer a joke to say you support Baylor. Your most recent film is called An Ode to Joy. It documents the rise and fall and rise again of Baylor basketball. You were a student around that time here in Waco when there was the murder um, of a young man who was on the basketball team. What was it like being a student at Baylor at that time? And now looking at it from the perspective of a documentarian, are you remembering new things about what you lived through? Because what happens when anyone's going through a period of trauma is that you learn to just survive. And it's really only with enough foresight 
after the fact that you can look back and see some of the ways in which this has impacted you. What what does it look like looking back on that experience that was happening while you were a student in Waco? A more tailored perspective to that question is what was it like being a black male student at Baylor when this was going on? We talked earlier about the the estrangement between the Waco community and Baylor. The the black community in Baylor, there were those relationships were non existent. And so you have at at the core of this story, a black basketball player is missing. That was the first part of this story. Where is this player? And and immediately the the, the conversations in the barbershops like, yeah, Baylor's up. To this. They, they've done something to that kid. That didn't player. feel too far-fetched in the barbershop. It did not feel far-fetched at all. That was the prevailing ideology at that time. And this is just a distrust between the institution and black people. Yes. And, and, and to drive it deeper, the distrust between black people in any predominantly white institution. Um, and so that was the context, like Baylor's up to something here. And then when we find out that his teammate uh, um, was uh, responsible for his disappearance and subsequently his death, that really got people thinking, like, what, what's going on over there? What's going on at this Baptist university, these huge hypocrites? It was easy to pick on, on Baylor because we were snobby at that time. We were stuck up at that time. And for no reason, we weren't winning games in football or basketball, but we were just, it was just an unearned hubris. And this was Baylor getting cut down at its knees. And what were the conversations uh, afterwards at the barbershop? Yeah, way to go. Like, bring them down. Like, relatives from Michigan, Georgia, Alabama calling me, Chris, are you okay there? You should transfer. You should leave. And then when Coach Bliss came in and tried to cover it up, um, saying that this predominantly middle-class Patrick Dennehy from this beautiful town, upper-middle-class town in Northern California, came down to Waco and was paying his tuitions by what? Selling drugs. That, and, and how he thought that he's a black athlete I can pin selling drugs on him. He's dead. He can't defend himself. And people will believe that. That showed the mindset of what black people always thought that white people thought about young black men. And then come to find out all that stuff wasn't true. I thought about leaving Baylor at that time. I would dare to say we have not even begun to earnestly answer those issues until like two years ago when we formed the commission to dig and to reconcile Baylor's past racial um, history and, and the very poor um, history Baylor has had with, um, with the owning of slaves. And let's not just put it on Baylor itself, Waco, Waco. as a city. This was a city that largely was built on the backs of enslaved people with the cotton trade. Um, Waco, downtown Waco, right where City Hall is, that was the site of the last public lynching in the United States, and that was largely what was responsible. They call it the Waco Horror. The lynching of Jesse Washington is largely what was responsible for the creation of the NAACP. Absolutely. W.B. Du Bois, uh, in his newsletter, wrote about the Waco Horror, and that was the lynching of Jesse Washington. And he 
published those lynched photos of that young black kid, teenager. Um, trial lasted less than, what, 30 minutes. Uh, and after they read the verdict, they drug him out of the courthouse and into the public square and burned a child alive. History, especially oral history, in, in the context of, of black culture, is strong. Um, in Africa, the griot, the storyteller, was the most honored person in the community, those who passed along these oral traditions. And with this Waco horror, you have kids in Waco now whose grandparents and great-grandparents uh, witnessed and heard of that brutal lynching. And that is what you were being taught to look out for, that this could happen to you. And the common theme of our, our conversation now, it wasn't far-fetched for black people and kids to think that if I get out of line, that's going to happen to me. So when we came to Waco, and we did a four-part series on the history of Waco with the, with the Historic Waco Foundation. This is 2017 or so? About 2017. It was 2017. Uh, we premiered in June 2017. I believe that's when we first met, Austin. Um, and when we were looking at stories to tell about the city, it kept coming back to that lynching, not because we wanted to sensationalize it, but it needed to be addressed. The Historic Waco Foundation at that time was very nervous. It was like, we can't show these photos. Why are we talking about the lynching? The family of the woman who Jesse Washington allegedly raped and murdered, her family, I reached out to them and I met with them. And I said, I want you guys at this premiere. And I wanted the great, grandson, I believe. His name's Colt. He's still here and in, um, in the Waco area, I believe down in Robinson. Spoke. That started the conversation. It was an acknowledgement that these sorts of things happen here. Acknowledge it. Let it sink in. Let it get into the crevices of your brain and your memories. The people across the river uh, in the black communities here, they weren't making this fear up. They weren't making these anxieties up. And all they wanted was an acknowledgement that these things happened. And we bridged that gap, if even just temporarily. Uh, we bridged that gap that, look, Waco, this is your past. It can be your past. This can be your past, but there has to be an acknowledgement of it. The number one threat to progression um, is not indifference. It's memory and selective memory and what we choose to remember and what we choose to put forth. Um, and we had to put this forth. We had to put like Waco, yes, this is a dark spot, a huge dark spot on your history. But there ain't going there, there there ain't no getting over this if we don't address it and hit it head on. And for what it was worth, the response that we got from that episode alone was very encouraging. 
You're hearing from the filmmaker Chris Charles Scott here on Downtown Depot. You had mentioned that folks wanted an acknowledgement that something had happened. They wanted an opportunity to mention it and to have it known that, hey, yes, this happened in Waco. Yes, this was wrong. And I'd love to get your perspective. It was a couple years ago, really, when there was a lot of kerfluffle about these monuments, Confederate monuments, and is this history? Is this history that should be erased? And I think that it ties in with what was happening in Waco because you have one contingent in the city that's saying, haven't we already had enough of this? Isn't it time to move on? And there's another part of the population that's saying, hey, reparations have not been made. We do not feel like this book is closed. And ultimately, since it was our people that were um, acted upon maliciously, we should be the ones who decide whether the book is closed. So how do you how do you read situations like that? Like what is the what is the line of forgiveness? How do you honor the history and discuss it while also setting a path to move forward and not just get caught in these same issues? And 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 let me be clear here that the reparations is not monetary. It's not monetized reparation. It's memorialized reparations. I mean, there was uh, a painting of a noose in our courthouse that stood there forever. Uh, they wanted an acknowledgement that this horror happened on public steps, on public soil, in the middle of a in the middle of a day on a work day in Waco, Texas. And if the town and the town's fathers and the town's predominantly white leadership could not even acknowledge that, yes, that was wrong, what happened back in, what, 1914 or 1912, 13, 14, one of those years, that we cannot even have an acknowledgement that you guys can say, look, that was messed up. It took an act of God to just to get an acknowledgement, a public acknowledgement that that was wrong. This has nothing to do with Jesse Washington's guilt or innocence. That's a whole nother conversation, the way that trial was conducted um, and the way the punishment was handed out. Not to speak of his guilt or innocence, but man, that was horrific. And in the whole arc of Waco, Texas, this is a town that was almost there several times and completely shot itself in the foot, both feet, every time. We had the, the lynching of Jesse Washington um, in the early uh, 19-teens. And then this is not Waco's fault, but the, the, the tornado that came through here and swept through the town is still the most deadliest natural disaster in the state of Texas completely annihilated what the city was going to be. Then you have this whole Branch Davidian thing, which is the marker for Waco. Where do you go to school? I go to Baylor. Were you in that cult? Like, uh. <laughs> and that was, you know, we all know here in McLennan County how far that compound is away from Waco proper. You have the rise of Baylor football and RD3, Heisman Trophy, and then the sexual assault scandal with that same football team. There is this 
anxiety in Waco and among Waco people, what's going on now with the stadium and the arena and the basketball team winning the national championship, isn't there a little anxiety about what's going to bring this down? Like, what's the next thing that's going to destroy us? And dare I say, it's nothing. I, I think that Waco might be in a place where we are shoot ourselves in the foot proof. Like, the foot is too stilled now that a bullets will not penetrate it. I mean, knock on wood, right? You have spent the majority of your professional film career doing documentaries. You got a lot of notoriety for a documentary you did about the city of Shreveport. The Waco documentary was 2017. Your film Class Action Park on HBO Max is hilarious and one of the most viewed films on HBO Max. It's about this totally insane water park in New Jersey way before there were any sort of employee protections or uh, really any People care. concerning. <laughs> exactly. So there was parental. Uh, yeah, that was back with, with the latchkey kids. Hey, yeah. just go have fun at the water park. But this this most recent project of yours, An Ode to Joy, it has come out concurrently with a series on ESPN, a limited series called Our Time, and they've been tracking the men's and women's basketball programs at Baylor. And it's not just the the success that Baylor is having on the court, it really is the whole encompassing story of Baylor to be as low as it was in the Dave Bliss era and to see it go all the way to a national championship. The the trailer of the Ode to Joy film, the greatest rebound in basketball history. That's got to be what this is, right? When you listen to Jim Nance from CBS after Baylor had won that championship, to hear him say, and with that victory, Baylor University has made the greatest turnaround in all of sports history. It's goosebumps. Because we see, we saw in 2003, this is bad. We didn't even know if we were going to field a basketball team. One of the the, the, the subjects, uh, one of the one of the uh, the barber, and that we interviewed for "Ode to Joy," said that after that scandal that year, you could drive an eighteen wheeler in the Ferrell Center and wouldn't hit anybody. Right? I remember my buddy Bobby and I walk into the arena, and they selected us to do like the whole free throw contest. You know, win a pizza. I don't think I hit the rim once, uh, but they still got I still got a pizza out of it. Right? All of these silly promotions to try to just drum up student support. You didn't even have to show tickets to get in the game. Just wear green uh, or just write green you know, on your shirt and you get in. Um, to now, man, it's a hustle to try to get tickets to go to the basketball game now. This, when we were, I, was, I had the great fortune to be in Lucas Oil Stadium when we won the championship. Saw it with me on two eyes. I called my agent. Immediately after the, the trophy ceremony, the stadium had started had quieted down, people were starting to leave, and there's just absolutely nothing to do in Indianapolis after midnight. Weird that we even have the, the championship there. We wanted to go have some brewskis and take some shots after the uh, the game. And we walked over to the bars and they were like, hey, we last call was an hour ago. Like, how do we celebrate? 
So I had that time where I would have been celebrating the victory. I called my agent. I was like, there's a documentary here. And she immediately said, nope, that's been done before. And she was referencing the disgrace documentary that primarily focused on the Patrick Dennehy, Carlton Dawson, Dayblitz scandal. I said, no, that's a chapter in this story. The ending to my documentary happened tonight where I was at the press conference when this 31-year-old Scott Drew held up a newspaper that he had had made somewhere that said Baylor's going to win a national championship. He said verbatim in his press conference, we will bring championships to Baylor. And to watch him actually do it 18 years later, brilliant. You can't make that stuff up, brother. It's one of the greatest David and Goliath stories that we've seen in sports in the last 20 years. If people missed your premiere event at the Baylor Club and they want to watch A Note to Joy, what's the best way for them to watch it? So we are uh, premiering across the state. Go to Sikkim365.com, Sikkim365, and Ashley Hodge and Colt Barber and Brian Etheridge. We partnered with them because of their strong Baylor love and their connection to the Baylor community. And we crowdsource the the funding for this documentary all on the backs of Baylor fans. And we have completed a three-part documentary series funded by us and with our money. That was awesome, by the way. Um, and it was it was an old Baptist past the hat. And we and we and we got it. Uh, but so if you want to watch uh, Ode to Joy, go to their website, Sikkim365.com. We have uh, screenings coming up in Austin. But we are now in talks with two major distributors, two major platforms uh, who are bidding uh, to put this on their platform. So this would probably be on your TV, your uh, Roku, your Apple TV, your smart TV, uh, hopefully in April. Chris, thank you so much for sharing some of your perspective and your story, and thank you for highlighting the stories of Wake Owens and Baylor. Thanks again to Chris Charles Scott and you for tuning in to episode 121 of Downtown Depot here on Waco Public Radio. You can find me in between episodes on social media at Waco Business News, and join us back here on the third Friday of March for another inspiring conversation with a small business owner, civic leader, or engaged citizen sparking Waco's revitalization. I'm your host, Austin Meek, and you've been listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. <laughs>